Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Brought to you by Great Clips. Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki, and welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans and family members struggling with post-traumatic stress so they can get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes, on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, we'll be featuring Bill Brockman, a United States Army veteran who spent 15 years active duty and an additional five years in the National Guard Reserves. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to uh, chat with us today. Thanks for having me, Jay. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. So, Bill, uh, Bill was in the Army from uh, July of 1977 to September of 1992. Uh, he deployed to Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Uh, Bill was also a tank mechanic, uh, recovery specialist, platoon sergeant, motor sergeant, and an M1A1 tank systems mechanic and instructor. Wow, you, you had a lot of accomplishments there. Yeah, in a very short time, it seems like. <laughs> well, thank you for your service to our country and welcome to the show. We really enjoy uh, talking to all of our veterans and, and learning about your lives and uh, the sacrifices that not only you, but your families made for our, our freedom and our our, our uh, freedom and our our uh, well, just the ability to do what we get to do every single day. That's that's important. So, oh, I appreciate everything you do. Well, thank you. It's it's a uh, it's the least I can do to say thank you to the men and women who provided us with our freedom because I don't take it for granted ever. And uh, it's important. It's it's really important that we understand that freedom isn't free, and some men and women paid the ultimate sacrifice. And um, man, we can never do enough for our veterans, as far as I'm concerned. So, again, thank you for your service. Um, so I Thank usually you. like to start the show up with uh, basically tell us about life growing up. Uh, where did you grow up, and did you have siblings and that? Type oh of thing? yeah, I I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, <laughs> a very liberal town where someone like me is not very welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> I grew up on the Far East Side. Went to uh, La Follette High School. I'm the oldest of six kids. Uh, so you can tell I came from a very Catholic upbringing. Um, growing up, I I had four uncles that were in World War II. Three of them were in the South Pacific. One served in North Africa and Italy. My dad was in the Air Force for a short time uh, during the Korean conflict, but he was not in country there. He was over in England. He was in supply because his eyesight was so bad. And uh, my dad's brother, my uncle, was also in the Air Force, and he spent time in Alaska during the Vietnam War. Hmm. 
So I've got a little bit of a military background, I guess. Yeah. From those people. My great uncles never talked much about it. Um, so I only had a couple of little stories from them. My dad didn't, he did not say anything about the time he was in. I only knew he was in because I found his uniform when I was growing up. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't find out more to, about it until he died a few years ago. And uh, my mom told me so. Really? That's so about you, all I know about. Yeah. You spent your entire life not even really knowing that your father was in the military or in World War II. My my dad was in during the Korean conflict. Oh, okay. During my, Korean my conflict. Gr- I had, yeah, my great uncles were in World War Two. Got it. And they they did not speak much of anything during their time. Wow. It was uh, a little bit too too hard for them. Yep. Yep. So they saw they saw a lot of stuff. Even during the Korean conflict, um, it's just almost unfathomable to me that a a child could grow up with one of their parents being in the military and you not even really knowing about it. Like you said, you found his, his uh, uniform and that was kind of tipped you off. And then not until after he had passed, did you talk to your mom and she told you more about it? I mean, it's almost comprehensible to me, you know what I mean? But I guess maybe it's that generation of, of people that they just, uh, you know, either one, it was too hard to talk about, or two, they came home and just started families and, and went on with their lives, right? I mean, it wasn't... Um... That, that's about what my dad did. He just came home and just moved on. Hmm. He, my mom and dad met on a uh, blind date. Really? Yep. And from there, you know, they got married, and just over a year after that, here I come. Wow. So tell me about the... your siblings. You're one of six, you said? Yep, I've got uh, four sisters and one brother, and we're all been out over ten years. Wow. Okay. And uh, were you pretty close so, with one another? No, uh, actually, we're we're not close at all. Um, when I was growing up, I was considered to be, oh, I guess, a problem child. Not in the sense where I did anything criminal or anything like that. I just I wasn't doing well in school. I had a very hard time in school. Um, I always felt like I was behind everyone else. Um, And that brought out a little bit of a disciplinary action at home in not a good way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also there, I was supposed to be the oldest and set the example for the youngest. And that put a lot of pressure on me. Hmm. Uh, So that by the time... I was 17, uh, right in the middle of the school year, I think it was about in December, I finally talked my mom and dad into signing papers to allow me to go into service. So I went in, I was, um, oh, what do you say, a delayed entry. So I was going to go in, but I was going to go in after I got out of high school. So I was still considered kind of in, mm-hmm. in December of 76. Because I had taken an oath and everything else at that point. Um, went through the MEP station and all that in July of 77, about a month after high school. And when I left home, I felt sort of free. Huh. I knew sort of what to expect, you know, after, you know, my uncles would tell me a little bit about basic training and stuff. 
They won't go any further than that, other than you're going to get this, you're going to get this and this and this, and that was it. I went through basic training. I had no problem whatsoever. Uh, I was down at Fort Knox the, the last part of the summer, so doing agony, misery, and heartbreak during the summer was not fun. Uh-huh. Those are the hills down there that they run you on. Uh, after that, I just moved right across post to my AIT and whatnot and uh, went from there. But, yeah, it was not the same discipline that I was having at home. At home, you know, when you got disciplined, it was a belt. Really? Yeah, so I got uh, up until I was 13 years old. I was just disciplined with a belt. That day, my mom told me, she says, you know, just go in there, and if you don't cry, it'll stop. So that's exactly what I did. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And obviously, I got to believe that that played a, a major role in sculpting, you know, who you became. I mean, we, we talk about it all the time, how childhood trauma is uh, is very real, and it sticks with us forever, right? I mean, it, it, it kind of shapes yep. a little bit who we are going forward. I'm not saying that it's not something that you can't overcome, but man, when when you fear your parents like that, or, you know, and getting the belt and those types of things, and you already said that you weren't the model student, but you weren't doing anything, you know, ridiculous, right? I mean, it wasn't like you were out no. there, you know, getting arrested and doing those things. I mean, but, but no. maybe basically just not conforming to whatever society, or, or like you said, not being the model student or whatever. But I mean, come on, you're a kid, you, you know, you're trying to figure out life. I mean, I was a disciplined kid in such a way that at 13, I had my first job. I was delivering papers. I did the uh, Milwaukee Journal in the morning. I had 15 papers to deliver over a six-mile route. Wow. And I did this rain, shine, snow, whatever. I think my dad might have driven me twice in a snowstorm. Wow. Other than that, I was on my bicycle. I was up at 4.30 every morning grab these papers, and I would stick them inside the people's doors so they wouldn't be wet. My dad worked for Madison Newspapers Incorporated, so he he showed me at least how to fold the papers and everything else. And he said, if you do this, you know, people will appreciate it. And that's what I did. I went out there. It was customer service, too, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. I had had all my papers delivered by 6.30 in the morning. I'd get home, I'd get cleaned up, get dressed for school, get up to the bus stop or ride my bike to school, whatever, you know, the weather was like. And that was my day from the time I was 13 to the time I was 15. Wow. And by that time, I passed it off to somebody else and started working at a restaurant as a busboy. So what I was disciplined in the fact that I knew that you had to work if you wanted things. You know, that kind of discipline I had. So I took that when I went into the service, I thought of it the same way. You know, I've got a job to do here. People don't think of it as a job. You know, people always say, well, it's a service. Well, it's a job. Uh It's a job. You know, my job was to go out there and not just fix tanks. You know, I started out as a track and wheel vehicle mechanic. That was everything. The 63 Charlie at the time. You worked on every wheel vehicle, every track vehicle there was out there. Because you could be assigned anywhere. Yep. 
Well, we're going to talk about your time mm-hmm. in service, but I want to just uh, real quickly just finish up with uh, life growing up. Um, did did any of your no. siblings uh, go into the military also? None. No, huh? None. They all they all turned away from that. I mean, the only good points I had with them is when we went to family reunions. That was about it. You know, we we'd all pack up or even when we went camping. My mom and dad, because we had six kids, you know, it was kind of hard to go anywhere. So we camped all over the state parks in Wisconsin. That We spent a week with another family that had five kids, and we would go out and we'd find a campground. We'd all have, like, two campsites together, and we'd go do things from there all over the, the uh, state park. Hmm. So that was our vacations. Um, we were taken out of state twice once to go to st louis to up in the arch and see bush gardens and then once down to kentucky to go to mammoth cave wow and, and nashville so those were my two excursions outside the state when i was a kid i guess with six so kids, kind of, it was uh you know it was expensive right so camping was probably one of the yeah. only options Yep, because you cooked your own food and you caught your fish and whatever else. You know, that's what you did while you were camping. Yeah. So, I mean, that was that was our fun times. Other than that, it was, for me anyways, it felt a little oppressive at home. Hmm. So tell me about, at what point did you realize that military was where I was going to go or what I was going to do? Was it in high school or... Yeah, in high school, I mean, a, a buddy of mine and I, we were excelling basically in auto mechanics. Our senior year, we were given a 8 by 10 sheet of paper, both sides printed, three columns on each side. These are the tasks you had to do to pass the course. We looked at each other and looked at the sheet and we're like, we got this. In a month and a half, we'd finished everything on the sheet. So our teacher said, don't even bother coming to class. You know, just go do whatever. You know, just report in here and then leave. So that's what we did. We reported in and left. I went to work. I had to go on the west side of Madison to work. So it was either bike over there or if I was lucky enough to have the car that day because I was working on it in school, I could drive over there. So it's, you know, all the way over to the west side to work at a VW place and then later at a Chevy dealer. Hmm. And uh my buddy says, you know, I'm thinking about going to the Army. You know, his his dad was in World War II. His mom was French. He married her over there. Uh, his brother was Green Beret over in Vietnam. Uh, he says, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Should we go in together? I said, let's do it. So we went in on a, on a buddy system type thing. That's how, why I said, you know, it took my mom and dad a while to understand this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. There's no change in my mind or anything like that. Uh, so we did that, and we got assigned to basic together, AIT together. <laughs> From AIT, though, we got split up after that. We were supposed to stay together, but we got split up. So do you so, think having a buddy going through the program with you made it at least a little bit easier? Because obviously you don't know what to expect. I mean, you, you had your uncles who told you what boot camp was going to be like and that type of thing, but did it give you a little bit of sense right. of security? Oh, yeah, because that way you had someone to fall back on and kind of commiserate with a little bit, too. Sure. You know, you had all these other guys there. Um, 
and you really didn't uh, know them, so you're really not forming any kind of uh, friendship with them, let's say. Mm-hmm. You have a little bit of camaraderie because you are placing groups to work together. So there's a little bit of camaraderie there, but to have someone that actually knows you there made a big difference. Made a big difference. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I mean, going through something, a life-changing experience like that with somebody by you by your side that at least you know and trust and has to help a little bit. So oh, yeah. I had a one issue when I was in basic training. Uh when I went in, I had a very bad acute sinusitis. My nasal cavities were just totally full all the time. It was like having a constant migraine headache. And the medic over there, the officer there, gave me a couple of drugs that didn't react together very well. And it made my skin very sensitive to the sun, so much so that I even burned through the T-shirt I had on. Wow. And my, I was, I was beat red when I came off the range one day and the uh, CO called me in. He wanted to give me an article 15 for destroying government property. I said, I said, wait a minute. I said, this isn't my fault. I stayed in the shade. I was covered up and everything. I got burned like this for a reason. I think it was because there's a problem with these pills that I'm taking. He said, well, if you can prove that, I said, give me 48 hours. He said, fine. I said, am I allowed to go to the hospital? He said, sure. So I went down there and saw a dermatologist, the full bird colonel. <laughs> he says, what are you taking? And I showed him. He grabbed these bottles. And he walked over to this big book. And he opened it up. And he's reading. He's reading. About 15 minutes later, he says, these two combined to give you an allergic reaction to the sun. Wow. I said, really, can you can you write that down for me? Because I got a CO that wants to give me an article 15. He says, I'll do better than that. He says, I'll go with you. He went down the full bird, had this guy standing at attention and kind of read him a little bit of a riot act and said, he's got to stay inside for the next four days. So I didn't go to the anything that anybody's doing outside. I got all the crap details to do in the barracks, you know, clean this, that, and everything. Yeah. That was my job for four days. So, wow. wasn't fun, but at least it kept me, you know, going moving forward. Let's say I started watching out a little bit closer for myself after that. There you go. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk to Bill about his time in service. Uh, so, what was life like in the military? Uh, and stay tuned for today's nonprofit of the week. Take a Vet Fishing. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, You can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. And we're talking to U.S. Army veteran Bill Brockman. Uh, Bill, thanks for sharing your childhood with us. Uh, That story, it's um, 
again, it's amazing some of the things that these men and women go through in their childhood and how it molds them for the rest of their lives. So uh, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about that. Um, I do want to move on to your time in the military. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, tell us about what life was like in the military. I know you had touched upon, you know, boot camp and stuff, but what was it like after uh, graduating boot camp? Uh, moved right across the post, like I said, to AIT. Uh, we went through 16 weeks of training and working on all types of vehicles. Uh, it was pretty second nature to me anyways at the time. Uh, loved doing it, tearing things apart, putting them back together, wonder, you know, troubleshooting systems, learning new systems. It was fun. Uh, we did have a problem at the end of our AIT cycle, though. We got snowed in to Fort Knox. Hmm. twice we were supposed to be sent over to Germany and to wherever else these other guys are going and uh, the third time that we were set to go out the two star from the post came down and us all sitting in a room he says if you guys don't leave this post tomorrow I will reassign you here and none of us wanted to be there we all got up the next morning and we made sure everything was cleared so we could get on the bus. We shoveled walkways, the parking lot, everything, just to make sure the bus could get in there to load <laughs> us up. <laughs> uh, so we took off. Uh, my friend and I, we were bound for Germany. Thought we were going to be assigned together. We got over to Frankfurt and I got off the plane and I was sicker than a dog. Um we were at the 21st replacement center over there in Frankfurt, a couple blocks away from the hospital. So they drove me over to the hospital in the waiting room. They called me up. Uh, I went down to the little triage room there. They were taking my temperature. I was at 104. And they said, well, go back to the waiting room. We'll call you when we're ready for you. I never made it back to the waiting room. I passed out right there. Next thing I know, I woke up in a nice bath. They said my uh, temperature had spiked to 105. Whoa. So I spent a couple days there, got back to the 21st. And by that time, my buddy had already been shipped out to a uh, artillery unit in the Schaffenburg, uh, down south about uh, 60 kilometers. And they turned around and said, well, you're going to go to 132 Armory Armored Battalion up in Friedberg. Turns out that's where... Elvis Presley was. Hmm. So you had the Elvis Presley dining facility there on post. Uh, there I was assigned to the headquarters company and I learned all about recovery. I was spent time on an M578 light recovery vehicle, a M88 medium recovery vehicle to haul tanks and the five ton wrecker. And I loved the five ton wrecker. That was that was my forte right there. But um, my motor sergeant there, he decided that I was the one he was going to send to all sorts of schools. So I went through a M113 school. I went through a tank turret and a tank hull school. I went through a couple of leadership schools, and he just kept sending me to all these places. So that by the time I left. You know, four years later, I left with a wife, uh, got sent back to the States at Fort Hood. 
Uh, Fort Hood was a little rough. I mean, granted, I made E5 and E6 there, but I also, let me backtrack a little bit here. I had to deal with death for the first time in the military when I was stationed in Germany the first time. Uh, we were in Hohenfels, and our sister unit was on the railhead getting ready to leave to go back to Friedberg. We had just arrived to do our training in Hohenfels. And one of the tankers up there, uh, he was a little bit miffed at the guys behind him because he was in a tank that didn't have a heater. And they were supposed to be swapping out. And he got mad enough that the guys were not letting him back in a warm tank that he loaded up a sable round and fired it into the tank behind him. Really? Yeah, I had to, uh, I got assigned with my war officer to go up and do the investigation. I was a E4 at the time. Um, getting down inside that tank was really rough. Mm-hmm. Had to inventory everything, had to actually describe everything you saw from the penetration where the round went through to where it exited, all the damage it did inside. And uh, there's bits and pieces of people inside there. There were four guys inside that tank. Hmm. Uh, So that kind of set the tone for me from there. Like this is, I'm in a a non-combat MOS, but I'm always assigned to a combat unit. So, kind of set the tone that this is real life here mm-hmm. this is what happens so i know the devastation of what a tank round can do wow. so like i say i'm i got married before i left to german national and they came back to fort hood uh, fort hood had two other incidents where i got called up to uh, one to recover and the other one to inspect uh, the unit next to us, the guy was in his 88 recovery vehicle, and he was bringing the boom up. And at that time, there hadn't been the safety latches put on the cables. And it slipped, and the block and tackle fell down into the driver's hatch and basically took off the back of his head. Oh. So I had to go over and do the uh, after-action inspection on that one as well um, with my warrant officer. And the next one was, um, there's a, a vehicle that the Army got rid of, luckily, called a Goer. Uh, it's a big four-wheel vehicle, about seven and a half tons. Uh, the wheels are probably about six and a half, seven feet tall. That was your shock absorbers. Huh. Uh, we call it a suicide machine because you could be driving down the road, and as you're driving, it's got a hydraulic steering, two pistons. And as you're going down, if you're bouncing, you're moving that wheel, and guess what you're doing? As you're moving that wheel, you're turning. So mm-hmm. it can bounce, and if you don't slow down, you can bounce and tip it right over. Well, that happened at Fort Hood as well, up on the north end. Uh, the driver got killed. Uh, his passenger luckily only came out with, I think, a couple broken ribs and a broken wrist. Uh, but I had to go up and recover that vehicle, mm-hmm. which wasn't... Uh, the best thing to do either. No. Uh, they 
before I deployed, I had orders to go to Germany again, but before I deployed, they decided they were going to send me to motor surgeon school. Okay, uh, so while I was at school, my wife was at home pregnant. Uh, when I got back, they told me, well, you're going to have to be here for another 18 months because of this schooling. We have to keep you here. I'm like, that's fine. I got a kid on the way. Uh-huh. Uh, so my, fir- my first son was born down there in Texas. Uh, soon after that, I say we rotated back to Germany. And this time I was with the 11th ACR, Armored Cavalry Regiment. Um, for those people that are aware of what the 11th ACR maybe was at the time we uh, held the first line of defense for invading armies coming into Germany, the Hunfeld Pass at OP Alpha. There's a museum there now that I'd like to go back and see, I guess. Um, I became one of the first mechanics to get border qualified. You had to know weapon systems, aircraft, vehicles, uniforms, things like that. You had to take a test before you could even go up to be qualified. Um, So I did that. I went up and did all the qualification things you had to do. Um, Did the border trace. It's 365 kilometers that you had to uh, patrol. So you had three jeeps go north and three jeeps go south every day. That's what you did. And I saw divers in the water on the other side that is sit there and watch and report while the German soul, which is the border patrol, um, on the western side, they'd walk right up to the fence and talk with the guys on the other side like they knew them forever. Huh. You know, uh, I saw a battalion of tanks, Russian tanks, come right down the hill in the town that's about 10 kilometers out, watch them come down. And while our patrol was off to the south, I said, these tanks are coming down. They're turning to the left, so they're going to be heading towards you. They went behind the hill, but they never came out from behind that hill. Turned out there was an underground, like, base in that hill. Um, On the north side, when I was up there, we had... I guess someone was trying to escape from East Germany, and they had over 150 Border Patrol people on the other side with flashlights, rifles, and everything else shining down into the river looking for something or someone. Uh, nothing ever came of that. Huh. Uh, we, we had a MiG fly over us while we were out running PT one day, low and slow. And 15 minutes after the MiG flew past us, there was three F-15s came in at about 500 feet just after burners going, breaking the sound barrier like like crazy. So it's kind of interesting over there. Uh, it was actually the best unit I had ever been in. That's where I took over. My uh, platoon sergeant came back to the United States to go to advanced NCO course. And while he was there, he took a compassionate reassignment. Little did I know that my first sergeant came, you know, he'd already known this was going to happen. Came up to me and says, oh, by the way, you're now the platoon sergeant and the motor sergeant. Take care of it. Really? Yeah. So luckily, you know, I knew what a motor sergeant had to do. I've been through this school. 
and everything. I knew what I had to do. Um, so I said, okay. I took over that position. Uh, I had 40 people under my control, five different sections. Some of the sections I had nothing. I had no idea what Camo did. I had no idea what medics did. I had no idea what supply did, other than cause me grief. <laughs> you know, so I had tank mechanics and I had Bradley mechanics, and there's and those two are split by Holland Turret as well. So I had all these people working for me. My XO was next to me in the office. Um, here's a good story for you there. I was in my office one day filling out my reports and my squadron commander, the lieutenant colonel, comes up to me. And he says, Sir Brockman, you know, I need to go take a walk. And me, they all knew I was a smart ass. Okay. Mm-hmm. And being that way, I, I opened up my calendar and looked in the book. I said, sir, I don't see you scheduled down here. And I looked at the XO. I said, was there an appointment made that I didn't know about? And that so just looked at me and shook his head. And then and the CEO says, he says, just grab your keys and let's go. So I said, okay. You know, I grab my, I have a big ring of keys. So we're walking up the motor pool and we're walking down the line. You know, we've got a Connex is there. All our vehicles are out there and stuff. And Connex is all marked Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta. So you know who's or who's. Well, we walked past these, and he's asked me questions about, you know, how the tanks are doing and everything else, because we've got his tank. Alpha Troop holds on to his tank. I said, well, we're doing, we're doing fine. I said, you know the OR rating, operational readiness rating? I said, we're sitting at 92%. He said, well, you know, everybody else is like 76 to 82%. What's the problem? I said, I have no idea. I run my motor pool the way I run it. I don't know how they run theirs. And you're just kind of looking at me or walking a little bit further. And we come across this connex that's at the end of the line. He said, I need you to open this connex. I said, sir, my, my connex is back there about 50 meters. He says, no, no, no. He says, I know this is your connex. I said, who says this is mine? He says, everybody I've talked to. <laughs> okay, I said, no, if I open this connex, I said, I need to know that nothing is going to happen to me. He says, what do you mean? I said, I want your word that nothing's going to happen to me. I said, I keep a 92% operational readiness rating for a reason. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't need 100 I could do 100%, but... I keep it at 92 for a reason. He said, okay, nothing's going to happen. I'm like, okay. So open up this thing. Now, remember, this is this is like 1983? No, 1985. So we have the Commodore 128 computers uh-huh. and dot matrix printers. Okay, so I open this up, and his eyeballs about pop, his jaw drops to his knees. Down the center of this connex, I have three M1 main gun sights, and they're all on stands. Now, the stands are very, very difficult to come by. But I've got three of them, and I've got three sights, and that's $95,000 a pop right there. (laughs) Plus, I've got all these other parts 
They're all labeled. They're all marked. He said, do you even know what's in here? And I opened the door a little further, and I got a little document protector hanging there, and I pull out this dot matrix sheet. I said, this is it right here. I said, everything is accounted for. He said, how much is in here? I said, I can't. I said, if I open this up, I can give you a real number, but off the top of my head, I'd say about $2.2 million worth of parts. He said, do you realize you go to Fort Leavenworth for this? I said, do you realize that I won't have 92% OR rating and these other guys would have less than 72 or 76 to 82% because they come to me for parts because they can't get them. He said, well, how can you get them? I said, I network. I keep in contact with people I've served with. I said, we all have the same little problems. I said, I'll give you a good idea how things work. I said, 411 came over to me, that's the uh, air unit, all helicopters, Cobras, things like that. I said, their motor sergeant came over to me. He needed uh, rotors for a Huey helicopter. He said, it'll take me a year, a year and a half to get them. He said, do you think you could do anything else? I said, let me see. And I started calling. I started wheeling, dealing this part for that part. This person has this part, and they need this. But this person over here's got that, and I've got a part that. You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, bargaining. It's like, yeah, it's like the radar O'Reilly type thing of mass. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I, I could, I could get about anything. Well, two weeks later, on his loading dock, he had a set of rotors for a Huey helicopter. He said, I don't know how you did it, but he said, I appreciate it. You know? That's cool. So that's the kind of thing I was doing there. I was keeping all this stuff going. Uh, in the meantime, I had a, another son born in Fulda. So I've got two sons now that are both uh, German national and American. They hold dual citizenship. Okay. Uh, we're rotating back. To the United States now, and this is where things started getting difficult for me and my wife. Uh, she stayed up here in Wisconsin. Uh, she stayed at in the my grandmother had like an apartment above her house, so they stayed there. Uh, she was close then to my mom and dad, so they had you know a little support system working there. But I was down in Fort Knox again. I've now come full circle. My job now was on the new equipment training team. I was an instructor for the M1A1 series tanks. Our job was not on Fort Knox at all. Out of the four years that I spent there from 88 to 92, I spent four months probably total on Fort Knox. The rest of the time I was TDY across the United States. So I rarely got home to see my wife and kids. Hmm. You know, so it made a problem there. Um, roll around to July of 1990, we're out at Fort Carson, Colorado. We get a telegram from DOD, Department of Defense. How fast can you push these guys through? So we sat down for a day and we found out that we could probably combine a few things and do away with a few things and we sent it back to them because we tried it out for a week before we actually sent it back. 
okay, we can do this. Sent that back. Um, come the middle to end of August, now we've already got troops going over to Saudi Arabia. And DOD says, you got to do it faster. Well, shoot. You know, it's already supposed to be uh, two days for the tank mechanics, the hull mechanics. It's supposed to be three days for the turret mechanics. And it's supposed to be four days for E5s and above. Now we got to condense this all down to a little bit quicker. Okay, we can do this all in probably two days. We just got to combine people together. So we got that done. We laid out the plan and everything, sent it back. They said, okay, done. Now you got to leave. Uh, this is in October, middle of October. Now we had a couple of us had gone out and got our elk tags. We had to get our hunter safety done. We got elk tags. We had areas planned out and everything where we're going to go hunting, things like that. Now we're being told you're going back to Fort Knox. Oh, and before you go, you got to get all these shots. Great. So we pack up all our stuff and we all drive back. We're all in our own vehicles. It's not like we get on a, a plane or anything. We are on our in our POVs and we drive everywhere. So we drive back to Fort Knox. Now we're told you have to uptrain these 120 other instructors in two weeks. And you can't tell anybody what we're doing or anything else. No contact outside of here okay fine so we get all these guys up trained and we keep poking and prodding them for about another week and a half well come the 20th of november we're taken over to cif we're given a couple of dcus you know the desert camouflage uniforms mm -hmm. and your weapon and here you go the only weapons we're given were nine millimeter pistols you know it's <laughs> not much for a firefight no right if, if it ever came if it ever came to that so, okay oh you can call your family now and tell them that you're going to saudi arabia so i call home my wife's a little frantic and everything she said well when are you coming back i said can't tell you don't know mm -hmm. and she's got a lot of stuff going on at home you know She's not having any of this really. So there's another thing that kind of drove a wedge between us. And then we get on the plane, we head over to Saudi Arabia, we land in Saudi Arabia from 40 degrees to 120 degrees. Wow. Hmm. Put on a bus. We landed in um, Damam, the airfield just outside of that. And we're taken to the port of Dahran where all the ships are coming in with all the vehicles and everything. And all we've got tanks down there, so we've got to get some set up and ready for training. So we pull out 15 tanks. These are all the ones for maintenance. All the other tanks are for all the tankers because they've got to train those guys on all the new stuff. And we're ready to rock and roll, and the first group comes in. I mean, it was nonstop for three days. Wow. Before we got to go back to our compound where we were staying, to get six hours of rest before the next group was coming through. Hmm. So we did this constantly um, from the end of November until right before Christmas in 1990. We had done two divisions of personnel 
came through, got them up trained, got them on their little merry little way with their new vehicles and everything. They're out in the field. They're all heading north. Uh, Christmas Eve comes by and we're told we're heading back, but the other new equipment team there needs help. So I'm thinking, well, I got, you know, stuff going on at home that I don't need to go back to because I'm not, <laughs> I'm going to go back and not be married anyways. Right. So I said, I'm staying. I'm going to stay here. So I was the only one that volunteered. Four other guys made it all the way to the airfield and got voluntold that they were going to come back and stay with me. I was kind of surprised to see them walk back in the door, but huh. we were there. We were putting, uh, helping another team put mine plows on tanks. So from Christmas until the middle of January, we had to get all these mine plows ready. Well, one day we go down there and there's an E7 down there and two civilian contractors with 16 pound sledgehammers trying to bang a seven and a half ton plow onto a tank. Like, what are you doing? Well, we gotta get this to fit all these series of tanks. You know, we've got four different series of tanks it's gotta fit on. Well, it's an Israeli-made mine plow that they got from the Russians. You know, it's not going to fit on our tanks. Give us one. I said, give me one. It's okay. I took it down, went over to uh, Redstone Army Arsenal over there and said, hey, just talk to the welder. Need a modification done. I said, how fast would it take you to take a quarter inch off here, 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 and here? This guy said, come back in about four hours. He said, I'll get a couple guys working on it. Well, I came back four hours. We tried it. We had chalk on there to see where it would hit. Tried it on there. A couple of spots needed a little bit of work. They grounded down, fit perfectly. I went right down the line. Boom, 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 boom. Four different tanks. Fit. Wow. Okay. I said, I got I got 284 more to do. <laughs> they did six a day. Wow. Six a day. So by the middle of January, we're driving out to Riyadh. We've got Five mine plows on two flatbeds behind us. Pakistanis are driving. And we're in uh, little Toyota Pathfinders. And we're driving down. And just before we got to Riyadh, it was right around midnight or so, AFN went off the air. Armed Forces Network went off the air. Radio just stopped dead. We're wondering what's going on. We don't have any communication equipment, nothing like that with us, okay? We're just instructors. We're not in, we're not attached to any unit, nothing. We are just there. Mm-hmm. Uh, AFN comes back on the radio five minutes later. We are now at war, is what they said. Wow. Right off the bat, we are now at war. So our NCIC, he says to us, he says, okay, everybody into MOP4. Now, for those that don't know, MOP4 is your gas mask. It is a jacket. It is a hood over your gas mask. It's gloves and it's boots and pants. Complete system. Charcoal-based, everything, so it's supposed to protect you. Hmm. So we're all in MOP4. We went down, and for about 16 hours we were in this stuff, we put on five mine plows in full MOP gear. Wow. Not the not the funnest thing to try to do. No, I can imagine. So we get done. We're coming back, and we're about halfway back, and 
I looked at my NCIC. I said, this is crazy. I said, no other unit out here is in Mach 4 that we've driven by. I said, I'd, I'd say it's clear. So we took that off. Well, over the period from the uh, middle of January to the end of February, we endured 21 Scud missile attacks. We had no idea where they were going, where they were actually pointed until after they were, you know, in the air somewhere. We did have one encounter with one at our compound. Uh, we were just coming out to go to Chow and the uh, sirens went off. The siren sounds like a tornado warning. Mm -hmm. So we're all putting our gas mask on. Of course, we don't have our mop gear with us because we're in the middle of the compound. Our all gears at the back in, in our room. And I see this trail of smoke coming down, and then I see two more lift off from the airfield. Two Patriot missiles came out of the airfield and took out this Scud missile about 1,500 meters away from our position. Wow. So we got all our stuff together, and at the end of February, right before the ground war started, we were all given orders we were going to be dispersed to units that were in country. Uh, basically reassigned, and we were getting all our gear ready to go, and on the day the ground war started, that evening, uh, the command sergeant major in charge of the compound came over and said, you guys aren't going anywhere. He says, orders came down from TACOM, two-star general, you guys are all heading back stateside, you're going back to Fort Knox, you're going to have to train more personnel to come over here because we don't, we don't know how long this is going to last. Okay, they were expecting a long, drawn-out war. Mm -hmm. So we were instructors. You know, we got to make sure people are prepared, know the vehicle and everything, send them on their way. Uh, so we all got out to the airfield. We got sent back. We landed back at Fort Knox. They came and picked us up and... No sooner did I get out of the van than this lady, a reporter from Louisville, shoves a microphone in my face and wanted to know the conditions, wanted to know this, that, and the other thing. What did you miss the most? And that's about the only thing that caught me right there is what did I miss the most? Mm -hmm. I said, look around you. I said, it's green and people are free. And she wanted to continue to push the point to the point where I was walking up the stairs to our office and she was actually following me into the building, pushing, pushing, pushing. And I was turned around and my hand cocked back and buddy uh, Steve Hartman grabbed my elbow and said, nope, come with me. And we walked, took me up the stairs and they sent us home for two weeks. Actually, I took two more weeks sometimes it was a month. And Went home trying to get things reconciled, but it was done. Um, after that four weeks, uh, went back down to Fort Knox, and we were on our way to Savannah, Georgia, and I was served papers in Savannah, Georgia for divorce. Wow. Um, that was a little difficult because uh, here I've got a three-year-old and eight-year-old son that she's 
going to take back to Germany. Wow. And so that kind of hit me hard. It threw me off my game for a while. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, At what point did uh, did you realize it was time to get out of the military? Uh, come around us. Uh, August or so of 92, I was given a choice of either get QMP'd out, quality management program, and get no benefits, or take a special separation bonus. Uh, well, at the time, I wasn't able to uh, run very well anymore because an Army doctor messed up my leg out in Colorado. I had, uh, I had herniated the uh, calf muscle on my left leg. When I was I was doing six miles, and uh, halfway through it herniated. So when he repaired it, he cut a nerve that went across the top of my foot, and it caused a lot of pain when the two nerve endings hit, to the point where I had pain shooting up my back. So I decided I was going to take the uh, special separation bonus to get out. Hmm. Well. I was I was told by my CO, who was a major at the time, he said, you need to go over to your NCIC and have them write you a end-of-service award. I'm like, okay. So I went over and basically told him this is what the CO said. And I was told straight to my face, I'm not writing any award. You want your award, write it yourself. <laughs> okay. I sat down and wrote myself a meritorious service medal award. My CEO looked at it, he said, this is perfect. And just, he carried it, hand carried it all the way through and got it approved. And I got it, I got it uh, the day I left, the 1st of September of 1992. Um, I left there and I was directly reassigned to a Army Reserve unit here in Milwaukee, 84th Training Brigade. Interesting. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, life after the military and transitioning into civilian life. I know that's very difficult for many of the uh, many of our men and women coming back. So uh, give us one second and uh, we'll be right back. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and buy Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips. It's going to be great. And we're back. We're talking to Bill Brockman, uh, learning about his time in service. Bill, thank you for sharing that uh, great detail about uh, your deployments and uh, your time in the military. Let's talk briefly about uh, life after the military. I know in, in several of the interviews that I get to do, we talk to uh, the men and women who are transitioning out of the military. And obviously, you spent a long time in the military. And so uh, having to transition back into civilian life, how difficult was that to you for you? Uh, it was total difficult. Uh, with my MOS, I was basically considered a heavy equipment mechanic on the outside in the civilian world. So I figured this ought to be easy getting a job. I went to Besiris Erie 
I went to Harness Rigger, which makes mining equipment. I went to Caterpillar, Oshkosh Trucks. None of them wanted me because I didn't have a little piece of paper from a school like MATC, Milwaukee Area Technical College or wherever, stating that I was qualified as a mechanic. I had all the background they wanted, but I didn't have that little certification. Wow. So So that kind of... Because of no uh, diploma from a, a college or, or a technical school, you 15 years in the in the military of, of working on heavy equipment, and that wasn't enough for them. Nope, was not enough. So, so was kind of, I was really dejected, and it uh, kind of pushed me down uh, even further, I guess. Uh, the VA in their great wisdom at that time decided to send me to school only not for what I wanted. Cause they were telling me that my job didn't equate to anything in the civilian world. And I'm like, look right across the street where the VA is in Milwaukee. Look right across the street. I said, there's harness trainer. That's heavy equipment. That's the stuff I worked on. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me that my job doesn't equate. Well, no, it doesn't. So we're going to send you to school, send me to business school. Okay, so I went to school for a while, and that was, as you know, I told you, school is very difficult for me. Uh Uh, It got to the point in, uh, and I got married again for the second time. Um, That wife, uh, she was very, she abused me psychologically. Basically, you know, you're always bouncing from job to job to job to job. Well, yeah, but each job I moved to was better than the last one. Uh-huh. You know, I was I was improving. I was doing collections at the time. It's the only thing I could find to work for through a temp agency. So I was doing collections. And just to take away from school for just a second, out of all these collections, I mean, I did everything from uh, – student loans to electric bills to medical bills to door to door to repossessions. Huh. Right. I worked all of these things. I even worked in a law firm where I did insurance subrogation. So I, I learned the whole gamut of collections. All right. Um, so school was really getting me down because I was going to school after work for four hours a day, once a week doing a, a, a really fast-paced program. That's what they put me into. So I'd get home at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday, and I would be up until 1 o'clock in the morning working on a paper that was due the next week, and then going to work at 8 o'clock in the morning. And in the meantime, my wife's berating me all the time, constantly. Huh. It got to the point in 2000, I was just about done with school. I was probably on my fifth or sixth employment. You know, like I said, each one came with better pay, better opportunities, things like that. But it wasn't enough. Uh, in 2000, I decided to talk to my dad. I said, let's go over to Germany. So I want to see the kids. So we went over there for about a week. Um, 
saw the kids and everything. Is that the first time you had uh, seen them since you had been since you had been out yeah. of service? Wow. So how many years yeah. had that been? Well, it's eight years. Wow. So you hadn't seen your own kids in eight years. Right. Um, so I'm over there, came back and within a week, I had decided it was time to end it. I tried taking my life with uh, over the counter sleeping pills, which I'll tell you does not work. Um, I went to three different stores because I didn't want to make it look kind of obvious um, and bought the same thing at each store and then drove to a park and parked the truck and took all 90 pills and wrote out a note and went to sleep. What I didn't realize was that I I guess I was coming out of it or something because I woke up in Delafield. It's what, 45, 50 miles down the road. Wow. I was I was driving under the influence of this stuff. Uh, I pulled off the road. I called my wife at the time and she was reaming me up one side and the other i said i just need you to just leave me alone i need to figure this out i hung up and i dialed 911 um the police came ambulance came they told my truck um, what's funny to me at the, at now when I think about it is the guys that were in the ambulance were people I had met up at Fort McCoy. Really? When I was, yeah, when I was pushed up there to be the motor sergeant up there for six months, these guys had come through, they were um, going through the NCO course. So they knew me, you know, because I had, you know, worked with them for a while. And uh, they took me to uh, Aurora Mental Health in Wauwatosa. I spent two weeks there as an inpatient. Um, it was not the uh, easiest thing to do. Still hard to talk about. Understand. Um, Did it help? Came out of there uh, a little bit. Not fully. I believe me. I don't care what anybody says that you know that has done something like this. There's still a spot in the back of your brain that holds that thought. Mm-hmm. No matter what, it's it holds that thought. So when I got out, I decided I needed to uh, get away from the toxic toxic environment at home. So I had an attorney draw paperwork. Um, A friend of mine's sister had a place and I moved all my stuff there one day. I just, 
my wife thought I was going to work. I instead called work, said I'm not coming in today. I loaded everything up into my truck, made two trips, emptied out the house, and left the key on the table. That was it. I was gone. Um, I sought help at the VA. Uh, at that time, the VA was big at pushing all kinds of pills down your throat. Mm-hmm. I would think I, I took the pills probably for about three or four days, but after the fourth day, my, you know, you just didn't feel right. Either I could barely function or I couldn't function. Mm-hmm. So I just said, no, I'm not doing this. Went to uh, counseling sessions. Uh, all they wanted to do was keep rehashing the same thing. They made you basically relive everything over and over again. So I'm reliving the sirens going off, thinking about the Scud missiles, people on rooftops, people in windows, you know, because we're driving through areas where we're not really supposed to be, and everybody's looking at you, and you don't know what's going on. So I had hypervigilance. I had anxiety out the wazoo. You know, I was irritable. I was easy to anger. Uh, I sought a lot of isolation. I didn't want to be around people. Uh, I almost felt like I was becoming agoraphobic. And I was really starting to lose my sense of purpose. Well, in 2000 and, well, 2005, I actually married my friend's sister. Um, we've been together ever since. But in the meantime, about 2017, I started getting this feeling again. You know, every time the damn tornado warning went off, I'd freeze up. It happened a couple of times while I was driving. So I knew there was a problem. Um, and I started thinking again that maybe this is not for me and I shouldn't be here. I was sitting at work one day and I remembered uh, seeing a documentary about uh, Boulder Crest Retreat. Boulder Crest is uh, started by Ken Falk. He was a master petty. I don't know if I'd say it in their Navy, but Master Petty Chief, I guess it is, in EOD. And when he got out, uh, he started a security company. When he sold that, a few years later, he bought some property out in Virginia, and he dedicated 37 acres of this to making this program for people to fight PTSD. And learn post-traumatic growth. I love it. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take a quick break and, and I want to talk more about this, but um, I want to, I want to really discuss, cause that's what this show is all about, right? It's about uh, basically talking about post-traumatic stress and mental health and making sure that we provide uh, comfort and healing to our heroes. And so as soon as we get done taking a short break, we're going to talk more about Boulder Crest and, uh, and Bill's uh, struggles with post-traumatic stress. We'll be right back. 
This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. And we're back with uh, Bill Brockman. Bill, again, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's, um, I know it's difficult. Um, thank you for having the courage to do it because I know that there's probably men and women or family members out there who are also struggling. And that's what uh, that's what our show is all about, Bill, is, is trying to shine a light about uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, let people who don't understand it know more about it, educate themselves on it, let them know how real it is. And then also... Um, we want to offer you support, Bill. I mean, um, that's that's what we do. So um, I know you've participated in uh, in some of the take of that fishing events, and you talked about uh, another nonprofit here that that you're you found some relief in. I assume. Um, why don't you tell us more about that? Uh, well, I, like I said, I, I was at work and I looked them up online, found the phone number, called out there. Uh, told the guy what was going on in my mind at that time. He said, give me 15 minutes and I'll call you right back. And 15 minutes later, I got a call from Oz. It's, that was that guy's name when he was in the service. His name was Oz. He was an Air Force operator. And Oz says, what are you doing Wednesday? This, mind you, this is Monday when I came into work. He said, what are you doing Wednesday? I said, well, I guess I'm working. He says, no. He says, we're going to have a plane ticket for you out to Arizona. He says, you need, you have time off at work? I said, I can probably get time off. He says, you need to take a week off. He says, get on the plane and get out to Arizona. Get out to see us. We'll walk you through this. Okay. So I went to my boss, let him know. He says, fine, because he knew that I had a problem. He and I had, had a lot of one-on-ones together because he saw that there was issues and whatnot. He said, go, just go. We'll take care of whatever's going on here. Just go. So I said, okay, fine. Got on the plane, got out there. My wife thought I was taking a one-week vacation to Arizona. Well, little did she know. Oh, man, I got out there. And out there you're taught, one, how to take care of yourself. You have to be able to eat well, properly, not junk food. I mean, they feed you well. Uh, They have a lot of one-on-one time that you have, but you also have a lot of group where you talk through what caused this stuff. Where did it come from? You find out that a lot of this is from even before you were born. It's the way your family dynamic worked. What was your grandparents like? What were your parents like? What were their siblings like? What are you like? What are your siblings like? You know, things like that. And you learn that you don't want to carry on with that type of life. 
You also learn how to focus. You go out and you do an archery session where focus is the big thing with I found with this whole PTS thing. The more you focus, the better you are. So archery gives you focus because you're looking at that target. You're, you're trying to hit that target. Well, then they put a blindfold on you. Now you got to learn trust. Hmm. So you're, you're blindfolded with a bow and arrow, and you have someone behind you guiding you. So you have to learn trust in that way. They also use, and I've heard on a couple of your other podcasts, you know, equine therapy. Uh-huh. And there you learn connection. You learn that connection from the eight inches between your heart and your brain and your connection with that horse because that horse can read you like a book. I don't care what anybody says. That horse can read you like a book. Uh-huh. I had, a, Of course, I had a lazy horse. She kept wanting to fall asleep. <laughs> so... But um, you learned that uh, the biggest thing I picked up from the whole thing was transcendental meditation. That was the biggest light switch for me right there. Just learning to meditate 15 minutes twice a day and also breathing doing a breathing exercise. When I feel anxiety coming on, I do a breathing exercise, four, seven, eight, four seconds in, hold for seven, eight seconds out, do that a few times until the anxiety dissipates. So I've got a couple of tools that I use daily. I use the TM 15 minutes in the morning. I use the TM 15 minutes in the evening before I go to bed to calm myself down. Mm-hmm. If I feel anxiety at any time, I can do breathing anywhere. Nobody's going to notice. Right. Nobody's going to, and nobody's going to care. So my irritability has gone down. My anger's gone down. I don't isolate as much. Of course, I don't look to make friends really anywhere. Um, Because even when I was in the service after seeing death like I did, it's like, you never know, so I can't really make a full connection. Um, I don't know how to, I guess. So it's hard um, for you to get close to anybody because. Right. Um, after Boulder Crest, which really gave me a lot of tools to use, uh, I built on it. The, the VA actually came out there a couple of cycles before us, the chief of the VA came out to see how Boulder Crest did things, and that's what they based a lot of their uh, whole health program on. Um, I've gone through the whole health program uh, from, was virtually through uh, Orange, the VA out in Orange, New York, I mean, New Jersey, um, East Orange, and they do a thing called mindful awareness. Uh, I went through that whole program. I've talked to the wellness director here in Milwaukee and if and when they ever get rid of their masks over there she'd want me to come over there and talk to the people going through the program because I can go through a lot of this stuff here that they've got in this book speak directly to it because it does work mm-hmm. so how how would you say 
coping is today for you? Um, I don't have the dark thoughts. I've got a purpose. Um, I got a wife that cares for me. I've I've got um, I've had hobbies that I can use to f- as focus. You know, uh, I do metal detecting, which is a a solitary type thing, but you're focused on something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Your mind is just set on that kind of thing. I do fly tying, even though I make some ugly ass flies. <laughs> They catch fish. I don't care. Right. I'm not trying to make them look pretty. Not trying to make them look pretty at all. Uh, hunting. Hunting is. I don't care if I shoot anything or not. It's just sitting out there mm-hmm. and taking in nature. Um, almost like fishing. When I go to the events or out on my own or out with my son, I don't care if I don't catch a fish all day long. Yeah. I really don't care. It's just. I'm focused on putting something out there, bringing it in, putting it, it may be repetitive, but it's very calming, I find, mm-hmm. very calming. So that's, you know, like you say, one of the reasons I do your events, too. Yeah, let's talk about, just quickly, about Take About Fishing, because that's how you and I got to meet each other, and, and I'm proud to call you a friend and be able to have you on this podcast, and um, I, I'm, I've got to be honest with you, Bill, I mean, I'm learning so much more about you, because as you know, our events are one-day events uh, in Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, um, now down in the meeting at the River once in a while. Yeah, yeah, so... <laughs> That being said, though, uh, any veteran or family member that's listening, um, man, there are natural healing powers uh, to the outdoors. And and so uh, just get outside. Don't isolate. Like you said, it's it's so important that you like you said, even when you go hunting, it's not about, you know, the kill and all that. It's about just being out there in nature and and enjoying what God's given us. And uh, and it's the same thing on a fishing boat. I mean. Uh, man, it's, it's so relaxing being able to go out there on the, on the water and, and catch some fish or not even catch some fish. It's, it's amazing. And that's why we do what we do at, you know, take a vet fishing. And so, uh, it hits on a spiritual level, actually. It, it really does. It. it really does. And and not only that, it's I I understand from talking to other veterans, and and again, I'm not a veteran. So, but that being said, the camaraderie amongst the veterans, and you know that oh, 35, 40 yeah. percent of our guide boats, right, the people who take our veterans fishing, are veterans themselves, and they want to give back to the mm-hmm. veteran community. So, to be able to put a, a group of veterans, men and women, together and be able to share a common bond and experience, and you know, you're an experienced fisherman, but as you know, there's there's veterans that participate in our events that have never held a fishing pole in their hand ever. Uh, it's the first time that they've ever oh, yeah. tried, you know, going out fishing. And so uh, the one common thing at each of our events is the camaraderie and that everyone coming off the water, it's so fun to look at their smiles. And um, and that's why we do what we do. Yes. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. I wish we could do it every single day of the week because literally it it it, it makes a big impact for our veterans and we understand how much of a role it plays and um, man, it's, I'd do it if I could. I'd be right there with you. <laughs> no, and, and thank you for that testimony because it, it really means a lot to us. It lets us know that what we're doing is right. And um, 
like I said, if, if you're interested, obviously, uh, Take a Vet Fishing is our, our nonprofit of the week, but uh, go to takeavetfishing.org. You can sign up for uh, any of our 2023 events that we have coming up. Um, we've got one down in Florida in April, on April 17th, uh, Madeira Beach, Florida, where we're going to be taking 75 veterans out on, on one boat uh, down there. We go about uh, 15, 20 miles offshore, and we just had one in January. It was a, a ton of fun. Um, caught a lot of fish. I mean, over 400 fish were caught in about five hours. So the veterans just had a great time. Uh, We're doing that again. Yeah. In April. So, uh, you know, and and, uh, all of this, I want everyone to understand this is all 100% free to our veterans. Um, We do not charge anything. As a matter of fact, uh, we put our veterans up in hotels the night before uh, any of our our Midwest events. So Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Uh, we pay for those hotels. And then uh, the veterans fish from like seven in the morning to 11 in the morning at noon, we present the flags, we do the anthem, and then we uh, feed everybody. So we have a nice luncheon and then we honor all of the veterans that are in attendance. And it's done by three o'clock. It's called a day of giving back. And Bill, I know you've been uh, part of it now for several years, and I, I certainly appreciate yep. the fact that you participate in it. And I, I even more appreciate now that it has provided comfort and healing to you because uh, you absolutely deserve it. Yep. Love the Madison event. Yeah, thank you. Because Madison is my hometown, but that event down there has got to be the best. Yeah, that's our biggest, that's for sure. And uh, we we certainly enjoy it, and we enjoy the camaraderie uh, of all of our veterans, and we appreciate the participation of all of our volunteers and everybody that makes this thing happen. But uh, And, of course, you like all the inter-service ribbon that goes on as well. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It's always fun. But, yeah, uh, I tried uh, I tried talking to a lot of the guys that I've met around here that are veterans to get them to try to go as well. Um, haven't seen any of them take that leap yet, but well, everyone pushing. is welcome, as you know. Everybody is welcome, and and we we welcome with open yeah. arms. It's it's uh, we, we well, I'm an advocate for you guys. That's for sure. Thank you. That mean that means a lot. Um, as someone with PTS yourself. Um, what would yeah. you say to any veterans or family members who are listening to the show who might be struggling with PTS? Reach out. Um, there's a lot of good organizations out there. There's a uh, big red barn. There's Boulder crest. Uh, there's the V now with their wellness program. They're all out there. Um, just talk to someone. Find another vet, talk to them, don't, don't hold back. Just discuss it because the more you talk about it, not, not to relive it, but talk about your feeling um, and try to figure out what you can use to diminish it, to live with it, to learn post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Amen. You have to live through it and grow with it. You can't let it live your life or de- define your life. Mm-hmm. That being said, I mean, you, I couldn't have said it any better, but I do want you to realize that um, uh, we have resources also to a bunch of other nonprofits that we would love to try and provide some additional comfort and healing for you and, and for your time and service. Um and so, you know, as soon as you and I are done here, uh, we wrap up this podcast. I'd really like to try and talk to you more about some of those and uh, make sure that, that we can get sure. you some additional help. So uh, any parting words? 
Well, like I'm looking at my cup right now. It says in your darkest hour, when the demons come, call on me, brother. And we'll fight them together. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, Bill, again, I can't say thank you enough for sharing your story with us. I, I hope that uh, there's another veteran out there that understands what you've been through and and decides that, hey, it's time for me to get the same help. Because there is help out there. There are there are organizations. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Excellent. Well, again, Bill, thank you so much for your time on the phone today. I certainly appreciate you taking the time. Um, life's a journey. Sometimes it can be a struggle, as Bill just showed you. But uh, there's always something, somebody, an organization out there that wants to help you. Post-traumatic stress is a silent killer, um, but there are ways of healing. So please reach out and, and take advantage of some of those ways of healing. Uh, if you'd like more information about today's podcast, visit our website at operationhealingheroes.org. And until next week, when we talk to another veteran and share another story, uh, we'll talk to you soon. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Take a Vet Fishing. We provide one-day group fishing outings to veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. The great outdoors has a natural healing power. Come experience the camaraderie and healing that one day on the water can provide. If you're a veteran living in or willing to travel to Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, or Florida, you can sign up free of charge to our one day of giving back events. Visit www.takeavetfishing.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and buy Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great.